Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. We currently have bonus episodes in the works about the films of Old Guard director Gina Prince-Bythewood and how Keith and I have introduced movies to our daughters. To subscribe to our Patreon, visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. You believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to the Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias here with Keith Phipps. And Tasha Robinson. Genevieve won't be joining us this week because she's whittling a new axle for her covered wagon, which sounds kind of like a euphemism. Uh, but we have a special guest. Uh, Alyssa Wilkinson, the film critic and culture reporter for Vox, is joining us. Hello, Alyssa. Hello. Good to have you on. First time. Mm-hmm. First time, long time or something. So with American movie theaters largely closed, we are continuing to focus on quarantainment, pairing films that you can find on VOD, cable television, or streaming services. Like many people during this quarantine period, I've been baking up a storm. Cookies, pies, breads, tarts, quiches, clafouti, you name it. Back when we used to record together here at Sweet Emotion Studios, I would occasionally offer you some treats. But since we haven't seen each other in months, I haven't been able to do it. But for this week's Kelly Reichert pairing, I've spared no expense in boxing up a fresh batch of homemade buttermilk biscuits and shipping it to you right out of the oven. Scott, I don't know where you found a service that does same-minute shipping. That must have been very expensive and also impossible. No matter, Tasha. It will all come out of the budget. Well, why don't you take them out of the box and give them a try? Wow, these look good. Man, do you guys get these all the time? I'm coming back. They're tall and fluffy and flaky and golden brown. Yeah, I mean, no offense, Scott, but the last time you made biscuits for us, they were like hockey pucks. They wouldn't have passed muster in the worst hotel continental breakfast. Hmm. This is delicious. What's your secret, Scott? Well, for one, I'm making my own buttermilk now. <laughs> you know, why buy buttermilk from a store when you can combine milk and acid at home? But here's the real trick. I'm stealing the milk from someone else's cow. Uh, how would that make a difference? Well, it agitates the cows. <laughs> There's kind of an illicit thrill about being milked under cover of night that results in a better product. I think what you're tasting is adrenaline. Uh, that's absolutely ridiculous. Well, I also remember to add baking powder this time. Scott, can we stop talking about your crimes against biscuits and start talking about movies? Uh, f- fine. Tasha, what have we got this week? Just before the pandemic shut down theaters indefinitely, director Kelly Reichert's new film, First Cow, opened to excellent reviews, and it looked poised as a possible breakthrough for the veteran indie filmmaker, whose previous work includes Old Joy, Wendy and Lucy, and Certain Women. But then A24 had to shelve the film after opening weekend and figure out another time to release it. About five months later, First Cow has resurfaced on VOD, and now people across the country have a chance to appreciate Reichert's low-key, detail-oriented period piece. Set in the Oregon Territory in the early 1800s, First Cow stars John McGarrow as a cook who scrounges up food for burly fur trappers. When he meets a Chinese immigrant, played by Orion Lee, the two become fast friends, and later, business partners. Using stolen milk from a wealthy landowner's prized milking cow, the cook starts selling delicious fried biscuits they call oily cakes, but these popular treats will only be in stock for as long as they can get away with a theft. 
Reichert explored this historical terrain in 2010 with her anti-Western Meeks Cutoff about a group of settlers who are trying to find passage through the Oregon Trail in 1845, but put their trust in a frontier guide who's either gotten them lost or has nefarious motives. So this week, we will hitch our proverbial wagons to Kelly Reichert's Meeks Cutoff, and then next week, we'll bring in her new film, First Cow, and see what these centuries-old stories tell us about the present. Please join us. Bought of land downhill. We need water. That much I know. That's what you think? Is we lost? I'd say that seems about the right word for it. We're not lost. We're just finding our way. I don't blame him for not knowing. I blame him for saying he did. We made our decision. This is all going to be a bad dream soon. It's going to be a story to tell. The most thrilling sequence in Kelly Reichert's Meek's Cutoff comes in the final third, when a small group of settlers, led by a grizzled frontier guide named Stephen Meek and a Native American they've abducted, arrive at a steep, rocky decline. In order to keep moving forward on a journey that's lasted many days longer than they had anticipated, they carefully have to lower each of the three covered wagons down the hill by rope. If the weight of these wagons, which have all of their belongings and their dwindling water supply, is too much for either the settlers holding the rope, or the crude pulley system they've devised, then their chances of survival diminish. It's like a reverse Fitzcarraldo, only here the stakes are life or death. If you look at reviews of Meek's Cutoff from critics, they're mostly extremely positive. When I first saw the film at TIFF in 2010, back when film festivals still existed, I thought it might be the best new film I'd seen as a professional critic. But if you scan through user reviews of the film on various services, and honestly, you should never do more than scan, the common refrain is that it's dull. It's a little like the show we did around The Assistant earlier this summer, where the most dramatic thing that happens is a humbling trip to human resources. With that film, and with Meek's cutoff, however, you have to change your metabolism a little to see how suspenseful they really are. Slowly lowering wagons down a hill may not sound like a gunfight at Nakatomi Plaza, but the consequences for any mistakes are just as dire. If you're keyed into its dusty realism, I think Meek's cutoff is as thrilling as movies get. As the film opens, the settlers are already in big trouble. They're five days into a trek that was supposed to be two days, and tensions are rising between the three couples making the journey, one of them with a kid, another with a baby on the way, and Stephen Meek, the bearded guide who has led them astray. Though the women aren't given much of a voice in the decision-making, Emily Tethero, played by Michelle Williams, starts to assert her will. She believes that Meek is either an ignoramus or just plain evil. She's past believing in the possibility that he knows what he's doing. At best, he's the 1840s equivalent of a dude who won't stop at the gas station for directions. The group dynamic shifts when they come across and capture a Native American, credited here as simply the Indian, and played by Rod Rondeau. Meek believes that the Indian should be killed on the spot because he claims to have witnessed the savagery of his kind. But Emily and the slim majority of the other settlers agree to keep him alive, under the logic that the Indian knows the area it can lead them to the water source they so desperately need. They give him a blanket for warmth, and Emily sews up a hole in his boot, all in an effort to barter for his goodwill. So the same question that the settlers had of Meek they have of the Indian. Can he be trusted, or does he have an ulterior motive? As played by Bruce Greenwood, who is more beard than man, Meek is a figure of such Trumpian bluster that it's almost hard to believe that Meek's cutoff was made ten years ago instead of yesterday. But it serves Reichert's point that men like Meek Confident, blustery know-nothings are a historical constant, suppressing other voices and shaping the course our lives ultimately take, 
if he were alive today, Meek would 100% refuse to wear a mask at Walmart. Riker's survival tale is full of ambiguities right until the controversial final scene, as the choices its characters make narrow much like they do with Michelle Williams and Wendy and Lucy. But the film overall suggests a foundational problem with a country where white men are always in charge, whether they're ignoramuses, just plain evil, or all of the above. Mr. White wouldn't sway to either. He argued for more patience. And we're at the man's mercy now, he said. Meeks just made a mistake as all. Well. Just in over his head. And then what? We were just getting into it again when Meek himself showed up. He'd been hiding above us up there in the rocks the whole time. That's where he was. He's strutted into the circle with his gun in his hand. Well, you found me. He said, now go ahead with the killing. They got real quiet and shut everybody up. Gately is happy enough to hang a man so long as he's not around. Alyssa, let's start with you here. Uh, what, what is your history with Meek's cutoff, and how does it hold up for you ten years later? You know, I was I was rewatching the film. I was thinking about that, and I think I had just sort of started working professionally as a critic back when it came out. But it was surprising to me that it even was 10 years ago because I remember it so vividly, which is not normal for me. One thing I remember very clearly is struggling to stay awake. And it wasn't because I wasn't interested, but because I feel like the film like really wants to lull you into this state of the almost drowsy endlessness of what they're mm. experiencing as they just cross the planes forever and ever and ever and the slowness of that um, which is really in contrast I think to how we're used to seeing that kind of a story and I thought it held up brilliantly I, I what a great movie <laughs> it is how like frightening it is and how ambiguous in so many ways I also remembered that I talked to Kelly a few years later about it and she told me that she would never work with Oxen again after making that movie <laughs> and of oh, course wow. she's gone and made a movie called first cow but um <laughs> in any case I, yeah i you know i stayed awake this time but i was a little more prepared and i think i was struck again by how much it is a movie about really watching time go by which i really love in a movie but i think sometimes you have to be warned um that that's what you're watching going into it and the other thing i would say is that i was struck by like the apparent unpleasantness of shooting this like this does not look like a fun movie to be <laughs> making because you're you're basically living that life like i don't think they had a lot of luxury trailers following them around no so yeah, so I really kind of felt like I was right there with them in that. Oh, for sure. I mean, I, to do a movie in this location, a period piece with what budget she must have been working with, it's mm -hmm. kind of miraculous that it, I mean, it just is authentic as it is. Um, I think Oxen and Bruce Greenwood are the two things she wouldn't work <laughs> I think she did not enjoy Bruce Greenwood either. <laughs> so, uh, Tasha, what about you? Well, I the first time I saw this movie, I think I had it oversold to me a little bit by, uh, <laughs> some, by me. <laughs> some nameless critic whose name rhymes with schmatch schmatch uh, it, it, It's always it's always problematic when you go into a movie being told this may be the greatest film I have ever seen in my in my life. Um, I am not a huge fan of middle of the story movies. 
Mm. I think uh, much is this is a movie like I think you exactly hit the nail on the head when you talk about needing to adjust your metabolism for it. I don't mind slow cinema. I don't mind moody cinema or like long shot cinema, but you kind of do need to be prepared for it. And you also maybe need to be a little prepared to know when you're watching a movie that revolves around a central question that it is has no interest in answering. Uh, I was very frustrated with the ending when I first saw this movie. I think because for quite a while, I resisted the film and its slowness and its seerness and its minimalism and its miserabilism. But bit by bit, it caught me up. And I I found the whole uh, wagon lowering scene very exciting and heartbreaking uh, when you come down to, to what it's about. But there are so many mysteries in this film, and Kelly Reichert is just not interested in letting you in on them, helping you to explore them in any way. And when we get to the ending and the answer is basically you don't get to know i just i found that so unsatisfying mm. so knowing that that was what i was getting certainly made it a better watch this time around I, I was able to just appreciate the incredible detail of the costuming and the performances and the production design and the backgrounds the settings the shot composition in the the scene where William stumbles and falls and everyone gathers around him, uh, that is a gorgeous shot. I liked this movie a lot better knowing exactly what I was in for this time around. <laughs> Makes sense. Keith, what about you? Well, this is where I uh, kiss up to Scott by saying that uh, <laughs> I was I was excited to watch this film because he came back from TIFF, so uh, you know, so enraptured by it, and and I thought it was great, um, <laughs> but it also was very much my thing. I I love the idea, of this sort of the gritty. It's not even really fit the category of revisionist western, but I'll just throw that term out there for lack of a better one. But uh, I had kind of a similar experience to Alyssa in that I was I made it through. I did not fall asleep. This is the first film I saw in the theater after I became a father, <laughs> so I was a little. <laughs> Uh, fatigued and this was really not the film that you want to uh you know when you're dipping your toe back into movie going <laughs> after uh, a lot of sleepless nights um but uh yeah really was happy to revisit it. it 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 was i did a list of my favorite films of the decade at the end of the decade and this was certainly on there and revisiting it i was afraid that that i would uh i wasn't that afraid because i've, I've really pretty much loved everything reichardt's done uh since uh and before this and uh, no it lived up to my expectations of it i thought i think it's a terrific movie and really looking forward to digging into this discussion as well because I don't know if I've actually ever talked about this movie with anyone at length. You can talk to us, Keith. It's it's okay. (laughs) Um, Scott, I think I came out of my first viewing of this movie thinking, oh, well, okay, this makes sense. He also loved Jerry which is uh, yeah, a movie no, that I, I had a lot of problems with. and Yeah, that was my, my favorite movie that year. Yeah, exactly. I honestly just love people just trudging across uh, the desert. It's just <laughs> it's just something about silent trudging in barren landscapes that Scott just yeah, really, I really do. loves. Well, it's so simple. There's this simplicity to it. And, and also, again, the stakes are really high. I mean, it, it, so again, if you do get with the flow of the film and you acknowledge the situation, the severity of the situation then the tension kind of comes. I mean, Jerry's a different film because I think Jerry is kind of a comedy a lot of the time and a pretty funny one, but, um, and th- this is, this is not a comedy, but it does have that sense of just that texture to it. It's, it's a very physical film and it's focused on all of the right 
details. I mean, like, you know, the, the detail of breaking an axle, you know, and what that means for us, you know, we bust an axle in our car, we take it to the mechanic, <laughs> it gets fixed, it's not that big a deal. But there it's like, wow, okay, we need to find ourselves <laughs> a log and we need to whittle a new one. And that's the way it's going to go. And, and there's so much, so many um, moments like that in Meek's Cutoff where you get a sense of just how hard it would, would have been to live in that time period, you know, let alone be in a, a situation where you're this deep into a journey uh, that you thought was going to be much shorter and you're already starting at a starting point of desperation and things are getting worse. And so those things combined, I, I just find it mesmerizing. So I mean, Keith, you were saying something about how you wouldn't call this a revisionist Western, but I am curious about what you would make of it as a play on the Western. Well, I mean, a revisionist Western to me always kind of kind of summons up a particular kind of uh, actually there was no heroism and things were a lot bloodier and dirtier than you thought they were. Uh, and this kind of goes beyond that, where it's not even really interested in the tropes of the Western as we know it. I mean, it's it is you know it is a middle of the action story in the sense that you don't get anyone leaving civilization or setting up civilization. It's just they're out there, you know, writing this thin string of what we would call civilization uh, from one point to another, and it's the part of the Western you would you would never actually see. It's maybe a, a part uh, that would be recounted briefly in flashback while someone talks to uh, John Wayne or something. In that sense, I think it's really fascinating in terms of how it fits into the genre, but uh, it's almost doing its own thing. Yeah, I think of Kelly's early films, especially up to this point, as road movies, um, which some of them explicitly are, but this feels like one. And there are always these movies where people go on these road trips, <laughs> if you want to call that what this is, and it's like abortive like they never really make it where they were going or they never quite find what they were looking for old joy or river of grass they're kind of stories mm -hmm. about people who never quite find what it they thought they were going for and a lot of times i mean i think in these films and this one especially they're looking for i mean they really started out on this path because they're looking for paradise that's what people were looking for they were looking for like the promised land and i love that in this film she really plays with that kind of explicitly through like the two things they encounter that aren't barren plains are this body of water that they can't use <laughs> and they can't drink from it and then this tree that's just kind of left ambiguous we don't really know what's happening <laughs> with that tree but it's like a very clear symbol there so i you know for me it's like very much in that mode of the kelly reichert road movie like a um, river of grass is you know kind of a bonnie and clyde takeoff where they are sort of a bonnie and clyde couple but they never manage to leave the florida town that they meet in um they just like can't get out of town um and mm -hmm. she i think excels at that and then she kind of has a lot of I think she has a lot of affection for people who just are trying really hard to get to their paradise and they just might never find it. Um, so, you know, this is a Western in the sense that it's in the West. But for me, it fit more into that trope or that genre. It occurs to me, you mentioned River of Grass, which I saw when Oscilloscope you know, restored it. And uh, mm -hmm. it's quite good. And so many of her films remind me of Jim Jarmusch's films, because that, that one does feel like a Jarmuschian play on a Bonnie and Clyde movie. And it, and it was almost like she didn't quite find her voice really uh, fully until the next one, mm -hmm. until Old Joy. But there's a lot of sort of binding elements to her work. And as I mentioned in the intro, yeah, there's a lot of Wendy and Lucy to this story, too, yeah. of just like of characters who have to act 
with a limited set of options, which is something I always love to see in a film because there's just so much inherent tension in that of just like you know i mean and uh you know them being broken down in the middle of the desert is a lot like michelle williams being broken down her her car breaking down in a small town and she's got no money and how is she going to get out of that situation and um and it's an opportunity not to kind of evoke the setting and then also just say something about you know america and kind of living on the margins a little bit and it, it all, all kind of comes together. So there's kind of a, a lot of cohesive elements to her work, which of course we'll get into with first cow. But one of the things that defines the film, of course, is its ambiguity. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of questions here about Meek and a lot of questions here about the Indian and what their deal is and what, where they're going to kind of take this group. And I was kind of curious just to start with, with Meek himself. I mean, what, what do you see as the film's sort of attitude toward him and what he represents? I kind of love that our introduction to Meek comes from the women talking about how the meeting uh, over whether to murder him or, you know, lynch him, <laughs> I guess, mm-hmm. uh, execute him, however you want to put that, uh, how it went down and just just that line, like, and then he started talking. Of course he did. Uh, just the, the <laughs> weariness of that and the acceptance that, well, we know how this story is going to end because they let Meek talk. Do uh, You know about his character before you even see him. It's just there's so much tied up in that. He was one step ahead of them. He was prepared. He was cocky in the face of people who were planning to kill him. And then he talked his way out of it. Like that's a, a full and complete summary before the man shows up on screen. And it's uh, I, I think it's just really deftly done. Yeah, I think it's interesting you brought up the Trump comparison, because I remember one thing floating around about this film at the time was it was obviously an allegory for the George uh, George W. Bush presidency. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, it was really about the, the war in Iraq and so on and so forth. I remember, I forget who it was, so they, they actually thought less of the film because of, uh, because of this. It's like, yeah, uh-huh. I don't know. I mean, yeah. it, 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 it fit. Yeah, you can, you can you can drop that onto there, but I think the fact that it, it applies so e- just as easily to our current moment, or you know any number of moments throughout history, uh, suggests it's a lot stronger than any to- you know any sort of inspiration for one particular period in American history might uh, make it. You know, well, I mean, there's kind of two qualities I think with him, which are very familiar qualities to this type of person, which is one is just you know an absolute unshakable certainty in himself. Mm-hmm. Right, and what he what he's doing, and I think that's uh, no matter what the evidence in front of no him matter says. what exactly, no matter what has it, and I think the other part is that that is persuasive to a much larger degree than it should be. I mean, it's gotten them way too far along the trail with this guy because he has that ability to project unearned confidence, and there's never a point in the film where he is not certain of himself ever. Like, does he ever question himself in the film? I mean, I mean he... at the end, he literally gives over leadership to the, right. the central couple and yeah. says he has no idea what's next or what to do. But I, I never saw him that way at all. I, I see him as projecting a confidence that he doesn't necessarily have because he knows if he shows weakness, they have already plotted to kill him. They already believe that he's failed them. And... He, I mean, he's literally Scheherazading his life out from day to day by making up the story of how they're just going to, they're going to find water over the next hill, or it's not going to be long now because of the way the mountains are or, or what have you. Like, I always saw him as much more a man of, of pretenses uh, that were necessary for his own survival than I saw him as a man who 
really does confidently believe he knows where he's going. I mean, there's this jockeying proposition that's happening in the whole group of people all the time where there's like these little bits of built in presumptions about who should be powerful and the decision makers. And that has to do with like the men and the women and also like the person who's supposed to be, oh, we paid this guy to take us like he he should know. And then, you know, when the Indian kind of enters the the story that adds another layer to that. But I I simply was struck this time by the fact that naming him Meek is like a giant ironic stroke um, because he, for whatever he is, he's not a Meek person at all. And it's, <laughs> it's one of those lovely things that I love when it pops up in old literature in particular, when someone is named kind of the opposite of whatever their, their major defining character quality is. And I love that, I guess probably John Raymond came up with that. Oh, no, he's Stephen Meek is a real historical Historical figure. figure. Oh, well, even better. (laughs) (laughs) And and the Meek cutoff is an actual Oregon Trail that that he pioneered. That's right. One of of my quibbles with this movie is just... We we know. (laughs) One of my quibbles with this movie is that, like, reading up on the actual uh, situation that gave Meek cutoff, it's not Meek's cutoff in in real life, but Mm. that gave Meek cutoff its name... Which just sounds like a much more interesting story than this one. Uh, there are more than a thousand people in the wagon train uh, rather than, what, seven? It was so much bigger of a production. And as a result, you know, there was a lot more incident, including a man whose sons died plotting to kill Meek and Meek getting wind of it and he and his wife riding up ahead and uh, have basically having to be rescued by the people that they were moving toward. The real historical version also tells us, you know, that they got there. They lost a lot of people along the way. And then they lost more people when they arrived because people were so uh, exhausted and ill and uh, malnourished and whatnot. But there there just seem like a lot of stories there that are very interesting ones that the movie doesn't get into. Now, granted, that's because... Outside of a Kelly Reichardt budget, though, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's what I was saying. Is, uh, $2 million does not buy you a thousand extras for a uh, multi-week shoot. It sounds like a Ridley Scott movie that would be, like, is better in the director's cut. It's kind of like, okay. And then the director's cut's, like, a little bit better. Like, that's kind of what that kind of sounds like. Mm-hmm. I, I'm in, to some degree. I'm just kind of glad that uh, like history gives us an answer one way or the other. It's like the movie is the lady or the tiger, but then we like actually look back in history and like, oh yeah, that uh, that dude totally opened that door and there was a tiger there. It kind of kind of sucked for him. <laughs> uh, I do love Bruce Greenwood in this role, though. It is in the fact that you can't really recognize his face doesn't even matter because he's got that voice. I mean, I, you know, I, I do. I don't know. I mean, we can only speculate how he sold them on the fact that he would be a a good, competent guide. But I think it's pretty evident to me that he's a good talker. And that's that's enough for people. I mean, to be a charismatic person who can talk and make you believe that he he knows what he's doing, I mean, that's that's how you get bad leaders. I mean, you don't have... It's hard to get an uncharismatic leader (laughs) um, because because they they need to persuade people uh, to get where they're going. And it just felt like an extremely familiar character type in a way that was pretty pointed on Riker's part to conceive. I think to be fair, though, if you are a very good talker filled with tales of survival and you are over a certain age, you have a certain amount in, in this setting, you have a, have a lot more credibility than, than, than other people. Oh, that's fair. <laughs> Just by simply being alive at that point. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, the real Meek was a historical traveler and guide, and he had a wealth of experience that he could point to. The big problem here was that the land had changed because uh, weather conditions had changed. You know, there had been a huge drought. But in theory, he uh, Meek could have pointed to kind of his you know, the number of people that had traversed across this land or what have you. But yeah, it's really hard to judge somebody's competence uh, to lead you in an area where they cannot give you an example. Mm-hmm. You know, they they can't take you to the Oregon Trail to meet the people that have already survived the Oregon Trail because then you're doing it. You know, he, he can't he can't take a few of you across and say, see, it's it's that easy and, and take you back. Like there's the only proof is basically his boastfulness, his his confidence. So uh, this kind of then brings us to the Indian who who is um, who they kidnap and who Meek wants to have executed on the spot, but that Emily and the other settlers or some of the other settlers want to keep alive or a plurality of the other settlers keep alive uh, because they think uh, he can help them. Uh, what, what did you make of that character? I've got a couple different responses. One is to what we get in the movie and one is to what we don't get in the movie. I mean, I think the story that we get in the movie is pretty moving in a very, like, a frustrating for the character kind of way. Like, you can just, you can see, you know, much as uh, stories of wilderness non-survival aren't particularly uncommon, neither are stories of uh, exploitation and commodification of uh, the native people. And you can just see from the beginning, like, here's a guy who was uh, just like out for a ride and he's kidnapped by a bunch of starving, dehydrated people who don't know what they're doing, who keep talking about either murdering him or uh, basically forcing him into slave labor. And it's, it's very frustrating, like for him, um, like on his behalf, there's just from the moment they take him in, there's just sort of a feeling of, well, we, how much can we even root for these people's survival anymore? How much are they going to drag this innocent man down with them? But at the same time, I like I was just so curious about what he's saying. He spends a good chunk of this film talking. And Slate did an, an article where they went to the native language guide who worked on this film and talked to her about kind of what the original script was. They say they can't be exactly sure what he's saying because uh, of the way the language was transferred. They don't know whether it actually reflected the script. But basically, a lot of what he's saying, like, there's a ton of poetry in this movie that we just don't have access to. There's a ton of, like, secret, hidden meaning. And it's a very emotional and sweet and poignant and powerful meaning. When he's sitting there talking to the moon, he's talking about how he thinks this might all be a dream and he's not prepared for it, but he doesn't know how to interpret what's happening to him. And he's talking to the moon as his brother and asking the moon to explain and and talking about how he wishes his real brother was there because if he had a, a person he could talk to about all this maybe he would know how to interpret it and in the movie all we get is the settler's perspective which is that he's just you know this savage making nonsense noises and and the truth just seems so much more interesting to me than the like poor perspective we get from them i was thinking about this as well because we visually a lot of times and kind of orally are getting specifically the women's perspective. Like there's a lot of shots where it's from their perspective. We can barely hear what the men are discussing. So that's kind of who we are in this film. But the way his language is treated, I was thinking about the Nightingale from, I guess, last year. (laughs) I guess that movie (laughs) came out last year. And um, 
it's a film basically about quote unquote dead languages, just sort of languages that aren't spoken commonly anymore um, in many ways. And it's also a film about how one way to eradicate and put down a culture is to strip them of their language, um, whether it's Gaelic or this indigenous language. And so, so I was thinking about that in this film, because in The Nightingale, they translate it and we get subtitles for that language. And part of the reason is that there was a desire for us to sort of get the other perspective to feel all of the humanity of all of the people involved. But I feel like in this film, we really are supposed to feel the constrainedness of the main characters who I would see as the women constrained by what they knew, by the kinds of people they'd encountered, by the roles they're expected to play and by what they're allowed to be privy to, which, you know, makes what Emily does in just pulling out the gun itself, um, but also in her relationship um, with her husband, I think, to be extra interesting. So I was struggling a little bit this time with the non-translation because I really wanted to know what he was saying for the same reason. But I also felt like my frustration was the intended effect. Like, I really want to know what is this man saying? and Or on the other hand, I could be put off by it and feel like, oh, this is like scary gibberish, which is how sometimes people feel when they're hearing languages that they don't speak in a movie. And this kind of lets us live that experience uh, for ourselves. There also seems something kind of symbolically important about the relationship that at best they try to have with mm. with him by bartering, by giving him a blanket, by sewing up his boot, by trying to find ways to communicate it that are in a way sort of short of, you know, I mean, you can see that it's a kind of a metaphor for settlers' relationships with Native Americans more generally. It's like, you know, <laughs> trade is not enough. You know, there's something just, you can't make up for what the situation is. You know, I don't know what we're to make. A, I, I guess we, we're to conclude. I mean, we haven't talked about the ending. The ending is certainly something we can talk about. But like, was his intent what Meek thought it was? Was it, to, was it just to lead them astray and leave them to die, basically? Or do you think that's still left ambiguous? I think it's still ambiguous. I don't think you can untangle what that ending is. I think you are kind of left with the same tools as the wagon train, which is, uh, you know, his face and his mannerism and his general attitude, but also kind of like maybe draw some conclusions about what you would do in that situation. I feel like uh, Emily is certainly uh, the most capable of trying to find a human connection uh, with this character. But I think even she is baffled by what awaits them or, um uh, next, I don't think the clues are there to provide an ending, uh, to, you know, to write the end of the story, which um, I'm fine with. I, I mean, one of the problems that I have with the idea of like let's let's try to interpret it from his behavior, from his affect, from his face, from from whatnot is again, if you look at the translation, he's just operating from a completely different paradigm than they are. When he stops on the hillside and points out over the hillside and Emily starts saying, he's saying it's, it's, there's water over the next hill. He's saying we're almost there. Uh, according to the script, he's telling a story of his people, like a, a fable about a shaman that came to this particular place. He's not thinking about, about them. He's not thinking about like their goal for water. He's not even necessarily thinking about like a plan to murder them or to get them to safety. He's thinking about his own 
own place in the land and his own people. And that's just something I don't think like a white American audience is going to intuit from several minutes of just like watching a man talk in a language the vast majority of us aren't going to understand. So I think we very deliberately don't have any clues that we can use to understand what Reichert is thinking in terms of what he's thinking. But uh, to me, that opacity is just not as interesting as all of the things that this movie potentially could be saying about human nature in exploring the the actual question of who Meek is, who this native is, who all of these people are in relationship to him. I, I think if nothing else, just the fact that Emily honestly thinks that sewing up a hole in his moccasin is somehow going to indebt him to them when they've taken him captive as a slave is... It just indicative that they they have no idea what they're dealing with. They have no concept of his humanity and no way to engage with it. And the the whole idea of you know giving him blankets is just so fraught because of American history and and the tradition of giving Native Americans blankets infected with smallpox in order to wipe them out. And then Meek says, you know, well we we gave you that blanket, but we're going to get it back one way or the other. Like he's also mirroring a a long time history of offering concessions to natives in exchange for things and then taking it back at the first opportunity. There's just there's so much historical ugliness like cleverly packed into this movie. Uh, but I just, I don't think the movie does enough to to unfold it or to give us a connection to it besides the sort of abstraction of watching it unfold. I think it's interesting to learn that he's talking about some sort of shaman's tale because I, I almost feel like at the end of the movie, they're entering more of a dream space. I mean, that the tree is such an odd thing to look at, this half dead tree that, or half living tree, depending on mm-hmm. how you look at it, in the middle of nowhere. Uh, the way they start framing the shots, the way we look at the Indian through the the branches, uh, the, the look he gives uh, Emily when he looks back. I mean, it really does kind of, and and the fact that I don't know how to interpret Meek's final lines, and he's given the last word in, in this film, and I think that's you know that's part of the oddness of the ending as well. I mean, they're very dehydrated by this point, too, which is sort of <laughs> yeah. what I kept thinking about. And, uh, you know, I saw the tree and I immediately was like, oh, Mad Max, Fury Road. And then I, <laughs> you know, but it, there is this sort of like, we've been so, we had no idea what we were getting ourselves into. And it made me think about the larger project of Westward expansion, um, if you want to kind of call it that, as sort of a lot of people getting in way over their heads because they think they know what they're getting into. And like, it was dirty and it was dusty and like, they didn't have maps and the, you know, the water was hard to come by and they thought they understood who are these people who or you know, I don't, they didn't really think of native Americans as people, but who are these other beings who are out here and just like reacting with violence and with a lot of kind of anger over the fact that they had basically placed themselves in an impossible situation uh with nothing you know they've got like covered wagons it's just it it's kind of wild to imagine what state of mind you would have had to be in and what you would have been expecting at the end of your journey and what you would have been expecting to experience during your journey um in order to agree to leave comfort and go there. Um, And so there's this sort of element of, yeah, I think the dream space, the kind of looking for, again, for a paradise that's gone. And then also the ending just being like, have we given up? Like, are we about to die? We don't really know. 
This could be heaven or hell, and we have no idea where it is that we've landed. I was struck because I went to Wikipedia to check something on the movie, and I was struck by the fact that the plot summary on there actually says that they follow him, <laughs> which they don't in the movie at wow. all. So whoever uh, wrote it, <laughs> you know, maybe was very annoyed or just like <laughs> fabricated that ending. In, it's a very in end of Inception, you see what you want to see kind of ending. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, or Limbo. It's like a Limbo ending. Gosh, I thought you'd like it. Um, hey, I really loved the ending of Limbo, but yeah. uh, I think the the ending of Limbo is set up by a great deal more action uh, and a great deal more character movement, which we really haven't talked about well, the, yeah, the cast to, or the characters here. Well, yeah, I wanted to circle back Meek. actually and talk about Emily because I think there's a. I mean, obviously, you know, I mean, Michelle Williams is. You know, it's an ensemble piece, but she's the lead. And I also think there's an approach that she's trying to take with this journey once she starts to assert herself and with the with the Indian that's that's different, of course, from what Meek is doing. And, and um, you know, and who and the result of that, you know, I mean, as we've kind of talked about what the result of that is. But what, what about her? What's her deal? Is I guess is my question. I mean, I think, as Alyssa said, this is very much a movie about the women and their point of view and, and to some degree their helplessness in not just a society, but a religious society that doesn't have a whole lot of use for women's voices or women's opinions. We see that moment where they all have to get up early to make the fires, to make their breakfast, to feed their men. And we see them kind of off by themselves, like having their little conferences. But we don't see a whole lot of them asserting themselves. We see Millie uh, just crying out her fears over and over and her husband dismissing her and, and shutting her down obviously being very frustrated because she won't listen. And we see Glory uh, just kind of trying to keep on keeping on, um, kind of trying to take care of her son and, and fall into line with her husband. But Emily more and more asserts herself. She asserts herself in private with her husband, which she doesn't do in public. And then she does assert herself in public. She's just, she's kind of the character here throughout the entire story that's trying to make an ethical decision, make a reasonable decision, and just make a decisive decision that isn't just being a follower. One of the things I kind of appreciate is it allows, I mean, Emily does assert herself, does make decisions, does determine the course of the journey to a decent extent towards the end, but it's not necessarily, she doesn't necessarily make the right decisions, right? I mean, like, I, I like that she doesn't like take over and then, or have things go the way she maybe wants them to go and that that's the correct decision. I mean, I think they're all, I think that, I, I mean, I think they maybe just be doomed <laughs> in that, and there was never going to be a scenario in which they were going to survive this journey or that the Indian was going to, to help them. Like no, that was never going to happen, but it is an interesting contrast in approaches. I mean, you know, of, and, uh, and I think there is something kind of like, there is a significant, the, the, the effort to sow that boot is humbling, right? I mean, she's, she's down on the, uh, on the ground. I mean, she's trying, you know, she's trying to do something for him. Obviously she has a motive for doing it, but it's not definitely not something that Meek would ever think to do uh, to kind of curry favor with this this person. That's not the notion of of even trying would be absurd to him. I don't know, so it's it's kind of an interesting studying contrast. I think. 
I think just the contrast between the three women is interesting in and of itself. I don't get as much of a sense of the personalities of the men. I mean, William's got kind of his martyr side. He is willing to to go without water for everybody else's sake, and it comes back to bite him. And Solomon, I, I think Will Patton may be the kind of the unheralded hero of this movie, uh, because he doesn't he doesn't get as much assertiveness. He doesn't really get like a big line or a, a big scene that's important, but he's such a backbone standing up to uh, Stephen Meek and standing up to um, Paul Dano's character, Thomas, who's uh, like kind of uh, impulsive, um, but also frightened. Like Solomon just sort of feels like, like the quiet backbone of this film. And the fact that, we never really see him. He he questions his wife and whether Emily's way of going about things is is right. And one has to assume that to some degree he's just he's questioning her based on his own religion, his own, his own beliefs. But he never pushes back hard against her. He never tries to shut her down or put her in her place. He seems to see both the humanity of the women and the humanity of uh, their their native captive a lot more clearly than anybody else does. And the fact that he's also quietly decisive about it just, you know, <laughs> keeps Meek alive at the beginning of the film, keeps the native alive at the middle of the film. Maybe it'll keep them all alive at the end of the film. Who knows? I mean, all those might be mistakes, though. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> uh, yeah. Now, see, that is that's one of the reasons that this movie does not fully satisfy me is we never know whether any choice that somebody makes fundamentally matters, whether it was the right choice, whether it was a good choice, whether there'll be a, a payoff for it. We never know where any of this is going. They, they really are stuck in limbo. That's why I like it. It's part of what makes it a, 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 a remarkable film. Well, at I mean, least we know we're not, they're not stuck in hell because hell is full of bears and mountains <laughs> and Indians. And we've only got one native and some very far off mountains and no bears. So, yeah. I mean, if yeah. you want to think about it in, the, in terms of the con if, as a road movie, I mean, it's it's mm -hmm. certainly more about the journey than, than the destination. Um, it is so, only about the journey. Is, right. <laughs> you know, and we literally get like ambiguity tree at the end, mm -hmm. <laughs> at the end, glass half full, glass half empty, whatever you want to call it. But I mean, even like Wendy and Lucy is also a road movie that that never arrives at its destination. And it still has big character movement and a big emotional heartbreaking decision at the end. You know, it's a movie that emotionally goes somewhere, even if it's not someplace that you ultimately want to go. I, I feel like even like certain women is also full of its ambiguities about how you're meant to feel about these characters, but it it does feel like it comes to conclusions about some of them and, and sort of leaves you with things to chew over that aren't just a great big question mark of, okay, and? I mean, well, I think the moral ambiguities in this one are so high that it's almost unfair because of what it's about, about this thing that has a lot of ambiguity to it, like, you know, obviously something that uh, at, within American mythology, we have both celebrated and recognized is full of terrible things that happened <laughs> and terrible, you know, atrocities that were enacted. And I love that her approach to this is to leave us in a place where nothing is certain at all in the story, even the smallest little decisions that are made are maybe good, maybe not. And we just won't, we will never know. Yeah, and I mean, I just think the decisions themselves are what is offered up for 
analysis, not necessarily, I don't think it's important to know ultimately what the consequences of the decisions end up being, you know, at least at the very end. Um, you know, and I, and I don't know if I, I don't know if there's a version of the film where I'd want to know whether they made it through, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, whether they see like the smokestack on the horizon or something, you know, or whatever, some, uh, some glimmers of humanity and that we know they're okay or whether they just all like, you know, whether it's like the game Oregon trail and they all just die of dysentery or whatever it is that you die of in that game. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm fine with it leaving as it is. And, um, I don't know, there's, there's something so, so kind of, loaded and interesting about those last shots and that was la- that last line from meek i just i kind of think it's perfect but, it's uh, totally a setup for a sequel that's what i think <laughs> yeah. Meek's arrival oh my <laughs> God. they'd be super cut on. it would go slower too they'd be even more exhausted and dehydrated. <laughs> which, which, are, which you give it's just about giving the people what they want uh so uh so we will um we've got a lot more um of this film to talk about we'll talk about it in the next episode when we bring in uh first cow but uh now it's uh, time for feedback Now it's time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. A few episodes ago, Tosh and I had one of our classic disputes, uh, this one over Will Ferrell in Eurovision Song Contest, the story of Fire Saga. Tasha thinks the film would be better with someone other than Ferrell in the lead. I think he's funny, and as the co-writer and driving force behind the project, essential to its success. But it is with the heaviest heart... <laughs> that I unveil this letter from a listener who agrees with Tasha. Tasha, uh, please uh, do the honors. Avec plaisir, mon ami. Katie writes, I had to write in and defend Tasha's 100% correct take that the Eurovision movie would have been much, much better without Will Ferrell, or at least without Will Ferrell as the front and center focus of the film. I was surprised to hear that the rest of you found his shtick so funny and engaging. My husband and I were so put off by his self-centered antics that we were at times actively yelling at the screen, begging Secret to go live a fabulous, fun life with her new gay bestie and forget about this selfish jerk. I was especially surprised to hear you all defend Lars for being ultimately supportive of Secret. That aspect of the ending musical number felt very unearned to me. If anything, it was Lemtov who throughout the film seems to genuinely like Secret and appreciate her talent. After the big dance party sing-along, which, sorry, Tasha, was amazing, Secret says... (laughs) Yeah, all right. Wow. Given that you said you were going to suppress this letter, I'm I'm glad that you included it, but we got to actually get through it. Okay, go ahead. Contain yourselves, Scott. All right, fine. I just was, I was happy about that one point, but go ahead. After the big dance party sing-along, which, sorry, Tasha, was amazing, Secret says she's never sung like that before, and that was all thanks to Lemtov, not Lars. Lemtov is also the one to provide her with emotional support the only time she really needs it, when she's waiting for the semi-final results. I believed in their friendship much, much more than I believed in Lars and Secret's romance. I think Eurovision would have been a better movie if it had focused on the somewhat quirky, elf-loving Icelandic girl who leaves her small town and finds her spjorg note, thanks to new friends and new experiences, through which she learns that there's more to life than having a baby with the guy from back home. Am I alone here? Listen, I will no, tell you this, Katie. Not. Ta- Tasha's you on are, your side. You are clearly not alone. I have had... <laughs> I know. 
six or seven people uh, comment uh, to that effect on my my letterbox. So I think there are probably at least a dozen of us out there, uh, and we're going to form our own uh, little little Eurovision Fire Club. Call it good. <laughs> yeah, but, but Alyssa's got to be the final judge on this one. Yeah, Alyssa, we, where, we where know. Are you, where we need you, Alyssa to weigh in on, on this one. I actually okay. literally don't know. So I want to say two things. One is that I love, I do love Will Ferrell in this movie because I feel like looking at Will Ferrell is in and of itself a joke next to all these gorgeous Icelandic people because um, he's just like visibly playing younger than he is with this ridiculous hair and I found that so funny I also don't really care too much about the likability of characters the other thing I do want to say though is he's wearing this leather jacket through the whole movie and the whole time I watched it I thought where have I seen this jacket before and then I realized I interviewed him for Downhill at Sundance this year and he was wearing the jacket so he clearly liked the jacket quite a bit and stole stole it off the set and uh, wore it to promote his previous movie, I guess. So um, I don't know. I liked him and I love this movie so much. I think I've watched it four times. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I had someone, most people, I will confess, did seem to side with Tasha uh, on social media, but I did have somebody who replied to me that was like, without Will Ferrell, this is a drama. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which which I, which I think is which I think is you know not entirely correct, but yeah, I mean Will Ferrell does kind of give he's you. He's a sight gag. He himself yeah. is, a, and he knows it. And I think that's what I like so much about it. Yeah, yeah. Maybe if it had just been a little less all about winning over this this fifty year old baby man and having his <laughs> baby man babies. If it had just been about his friendship and her, how much she feels she owes him for having helped her find her voice in the first place. And if if exactly as Katie said here, the change around didn't seem so unearned and abrupt at the end, maybe it would have worked better for me. I just I the whole idea of uh, any Lady Mackinon Will Ferrell uh, at this point in his life, let alone having clearly been Mackinon him for 40 years. Uh, just no. He's, yikes. He's sweet. He's fun. He is also very few men in that town. Just gonna say <laughs> yeah, that is, but but then she goes to a different town where there are different men, one of whom is frequently shirtless and extremely hot. That's true, and but a good singer. Lemtoff can't be Lemtoff. <laughs> <laughs> Which one is uh, it? However, everybody is saying that I'm wrong about the uh, the dance party sing along, and I, yeah, I guess to clarify yeah. my thought there, I, it just I found it weird because it seemed out of place. Uh, I wish there had been more like that, or or <laughs> not that one thing but I, I mean everybody's right it's, it's super it's super ripped fun. from pitch perfect and that is why i loved it uh, i was like ah, it's the pitch perfect moment but um i think uh, we can all agree that the fact that i can yell ya ya in my house and someone will reply <laughs> ding dong is like just the greatest thing that could have happened i, I yeah. think there was a period of a couple weeks where if you just yelled it out the window somebody would have yelled back ding dong at you <laughs> Yeah. And then your it's neighbors would like... scream, sing ya ya ding dong at you for like the next month. That's great. Yeah. I mean, we're going to remember this whole period of our lives as being like Tiger King, The Last Dance, and everybody in ya ya ding dong being the song of the summer. So uh, <laughs> that's uh, it's just a strange time. So moving ahead uh, to our episodes on Groundhog Day and Palm Springs. A listener praises an aspect of Groundhog Day that wasn't brought up in the podcast. Alyssa, do you want to read that for us? Sure. Josh writes, I'm listening to the discussion of Groundhog Day. One thing I was surprised you all didn't bring up more was how great it is that the movie issues explaining what's happening to Phil. By all accounts, it was laid out in the original screenplay, but I think the film is really so much stronger for leaving the mystery unexplained. 
It allows the film to become more of a parable of sorts, and it opens it up to interpretation. We don't even know for sure what exactly it is that lets Phil get out of the loop, as you mentioned, and I think that's another strength of the film. If there were an easy answer, the film would become more simplistic. And a lot of that boils down to not explaining the central mystery. There's no evil witch, there's no bad fortune teller machine, there's no wizard, there's just a strange experience that offers no answers or explanations, which is one of the reasons the film can support all those religious interpretations you all discussed. Also, I wondered if any of you, I'm especially thinking Tasha since she tends to be the most open to extra textuals, have listened to Stephen Tobolowsky's podcast, The Tobolowsky Files, episode about the show. It's called The Classic. I think it's a fascinating window into how the movie came to be. I remember him talking about how the original script for the movie didn't have the scene where Murray breaks the pencil in front of the clock. Instead, it was a wild... Keith Moon-esque hotel room destruction, a big expensive moment in the movie with Murray fully unchained. But people felt like it was wrong for the movie, and they scrapped the scene in favor of the pencil, a choice that feels much more in keeping with the movie we got. It's a really interesting window into how the movie came to be, and how close it came to being something far less interesting, and something far closer to the fun but empty knockoffs that would come afterward like Liar Liar. I definitely recommend checking it out. So my husband actually got me into the Tobolowsky Files podcast uh, back when it was coming out. And I was a huge fan. Um, I followed them as they were, were being released. And yeah, the insight into the films that he worked on, the behind the scenes stories are fabulous. The perspective on what it's like being just like a working, a very, very busy working character actor, um, but also just sort of the insight into life. I, I hugely recommend the Tobolowsky Files. Uh, I don't remember many details from the episode, The Classic. I just looked it up. It came out in May 2010. So <laughs> 10 years later, I have not retained a, a ton of specific detail about that episode. Um, but I will take your word for it that it's uh, relevant and fun and insightful because for the most part, that podcast really was. Uh, I love it. I think people would, would dig it. Yeah, I like it too. I, I don't remember the details of that episode either, but uh, uh, but his his storytelling in general is just uh, you know highly recommendable. I guess it hasn't been an episode in three years, so the last one's listed as season finale, but I guess maybe it's the finale finale. Do you know any well, details? He's a busy dude, and uh, it was uh, in a partnership with our podcast buddy David Chen, who is also doing twenty seven other podcasts yeah. at all times. <laughs> he's, he's busy. So, they're they're both very very busy, um, and you know David's David can only pack so much uh, thoughtful, insightful uh, cultural commentary into a a twenty four hour day. Um, <laughs> he's but, a day job too. He's like he's got a lot. Of, he's got a lot going on. <laughs> he really does have a lot going on. Shout out to Dave. We love you. Um, uh, yeah, but it if I recall, it uh, went on hiatus and it came back for a few episodes um, and is back on hiatus. But uh, yeah, yeah, knowing the two of them, who knows? Maybe he's just building up a uh, a new stock of stories. He had kind of explored his considerable uh, past and many, many, many movies. Maybe he just needs to, to refresh that pool. One thing I will say, I mean, just to tie both parts of Josh's letter together, because I feel kind of like two letters smooshed into one, is that I think both decisions, both the decision not to tell us why this is happening to Bill Murray's character and the decision to break the pencil rather than have him destroy the room are just really smart decisions to simplify the film, to make it less busy, 
and to give you something very clean uh, and efficient. Um, and that was one of the things that we talked about with the movie is that it has, it's so carefully calibrated in a way that modern comedies, you know, with their kind of improvisational style rarely are. I mean, it feels kind of like a classic script or like an approach you would take to an old Hollywood script, which would be a little bit better constructed. And so both of those decisions, I think, you know, feed into the movie, uh, feed into that kind of aesthetic and and make the movie uh, better. Uh, Yes, just overall, I think everything like big and talky that was left out of this film improves this film. Definitely. Alyssa, when was the last time you revisited Groundhog Day? I was just wondering that. And I I feel like it was at least it might have been like 2005. I a really great quality that I have as a film critic is I have no memory of the plot of any movie I've ever seen. (laughs) Um, It's really, really awesome. So I I know the concept of Groundhog Day, but I couldn't tell you anything specific that happens in that movie, even though I really remember enjoying it. But it probably was like 15 years ago. Do you know when it was set? Nope. <laughs> Groundhog Day. <laughs> oh, I think you're thinking. <laughs> yeah, over and over again, right? You you, you know that, that Scott's got a lockdown on dad jokes in his podcast, <laughs> right? Too. I He's feel like too. there's a real, there's a, there's a lot of film critics who, who are vying for that title, but yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Justin Chang's coming on strong. He's only got the one, you know, Keith and Justin just have the one, but boy, they're, they're keeping up with the dad, jo- dad jokes. <laughs> I think jo- uh, Justin started telling dad jokes when he was a baby. <laughs> Well, uh, that's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll follow Kelly Reichert back to 1800s Oregon again for First Cow. Look for that episode next Tuesday, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Even better still, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net. Follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we're tossing your favorite rocking chair off the wagon. It's too heavy for our podcast to carry. We're